Continuing our discussions on progressive devotional service aimed at developing the fine discrimination necessary to tread the path of bhakti without being disturbed by misconception, without being overcome by uh, bad habits and and the resulting uh, misconceptions that can result from a lack of good guidance. So in the in the realm of bhakti, there's sufficient good guidance for us. Unfortunately, sometimes along the way, one may come under uh, the influence of the Kanista Adhikari misrepresenting himself as being more advanced than he actually yet has qualification for. Just like in any field of endeavor, if one puts themselves forward as a qualified person, and they truly lack uh, qualification, there can be damage along the way. You can imagine going to a physician. He has a shingle, and he's very good at Photoshop and page layout, and he's got a nice color printer, so he could he can print himself some diplomas, put them on the wall, Common man's going to have a hard time discerning. He's not going to be able to look at, a, at the diploma and say, well, this is a fake diploma. Who would even think such? I came, when came to a doctor's office. He has everything here looks like a doctor's office. There's all the machines. There's the nurses. There's uh, the receptionist and the waiting room and uh, the examination table. Uh, what's to lead me to think? I mean, he he was even listed in the yellow pages, so he must be he must be okay. Unfortunately, this is not the the world of uh, where there isn't uh, cheaters and the cheated. My spiritual master Srila Prabhupada would often use this terminology. This is the world of the cheaters and the cheated. There's certainly some significant insight there that we need to we need to develop the fine discrimination so that we ourselves are not cheated. And don't get me wrong, there may be devotees out there that have the best of intent, just as the doctor may have the best of intent. He really wants to help people. That laser print degree he put on the wall and to mislead people to think that he was qualified to lend that help speaks volumes as to his actual disqualification, despite all the good intentions in the world. Similarly, in spiritual life, all the good intentions of the world, if not properly nourished in the proper way, 
through uh, the chain of unbroken, pure, dislipic succession can, uh, can wreak havoc on the path of spiritual pursuit. And even within a tradition of one of the major lineages of, you know, Vishnu Bhaktas, or even in the lineage of uh, coming forward from Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the 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 current of pure bhakti can be misrepresented by someone who fully hasn't come to the platform of, of qualification. So as we said, the kanista may may misrepresent things. He may not know that he's misrepresenting things. He may not have developed the discrimination yet. That's the core element of what we're going to discuss this evening. Just because something is put forward in in the scriptures, it has to be in order to be fully and properly understood, good guidance is, is absolutely necessary. We're studying Madhurya Kadambani, and Madhurya Kadambani, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, is, is elaborating on the teachings of Srila Rupa Goswami so that there is no misunderstanding about what he is presenting in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Now, of course, Rupa is fully qualified to explain what he means, but the nature of disciplic succession is the climate, the cultural climate and the educational climate of humanity is constantly on an ebb and flow. It's constantly changing. So, even though the Acharya somebody as, as qualified as Rupa Goswami is presenting the essence of Abhideya, Abhideya being devotional practice for the sadhaka in such a way that he can quickly and easily attain to the shelter of the Rigatmikas, those people that are actually serving Krishna directly in Vraj. So he's, he's trying to pull the reader in that direction. But he's written this magnificent literature, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. He's presented it in a different society, at a different time. And he's presented it, although perfectly for that time, place, and circumstance, those coming later may have difficulty fully comprehending what he's trying to put across. There's always some work for future sadhikas coming in a disciplic succession to nicely elaborate on and present the teachings according to time, place, and circumstance, according to the audience. Of course, in there, it's we're not in a practice that is simply robotic. Even the teacher has his own personal personal taste for the practice of bhakti and has some something to add to the message, as does the audience in the way that they approach uh, what they're hearing, the attentiveness that's there, uh, their appreciation for the speaker, 
Uh, all these things have some influence on the flow of bhakti. But bhakti is fully independent. It is, it's an interesting thing when we consider that that independence still leaves some room for us. There's some, there is something to be done on our behalf to, and bhakti, want, bhakti wants that out of us. It wants our attention. It wants our, our attention both in speaking and in hearing. It wants our attention in service and reciprocates in a way that some may think, well, it's a material reciprocation, but it's not. It's a loving exchange from the very beginning that one comes in contact with the practice of bhakti through Krishna's devotees who are the ones who are, as we've come to understand through Vishwanath's explanations in Madhurya Kadamani, they are the conduit for the Kripa Shakti, the mercy of the Supreme Lord. So this fine discrimination and this super excellent explanation by uh, the advanced devotees of what the verses actually mean is critical and we're going to see tonight a, a vivid example of that that Vishwanath uses so that to, to benefit us so we're not confused and what he's giving us is not the particular example it's not the significance of the particular example that we're going to be discussing tonight Significant to us as practitioners is the fact that we always need to take shelter of good guidance. And just because we read a verse, make, we, need to, we need to make sure that we understand these verses in the context of the tradition that we're following. And what tradition? We're following the path of bhakti there are other paths there are other practitioners that also take some guidance from the very same books that we study we look at these books we look at the vedas we look at the mature commentary on the veda the srimad bhagavatam in a certain way other sampradayas they may have other objectives other other istadevas other ultimate relationships that they see as the topmost with the Supreme. And there are other practitioners who really, their whole concept has nothing to do with a relationship with the Supreme Personality. They may just want to have a relationship with the Supreme Energy of what we know is coming from a Personality. They may discount the Personality. And say what's more important is the energy. We call them Mayavadis. They, they say that ultimately, if you're thinking that the Supreme Brahman has a form, you're in Maya. And we're saying, no, the real Maya is you not recognizing that the Supreme form is from, from that form is what is coming, this energy of the Supreme. So first there's the the energetic source, and then there's the energy. And they say, well, no, there's just the energy 
But there's no source for that energy. It's all pervading. It's always been. It always will be. And whenever you try to <coughs> capture that energy into a form, then you are an illusion. That form is not a permanent manifestation. They apply their material brain to matters of spirit in a way that is unbecoming. So they see the same scriptures different from us. Vishwanath brings this out in Madhurya Kadamani. I'm going to read a verse. It's a long verse. We're going to read the English. And then we're going to discuss it so that the point I'm trying to get across, and I'm simply trying to give you the, uh, a bit of an explanation here in, uh, in a way that we can enter into the significance of hearing from the, from the qualified source from the bona fide spiritual master, who is himself qualified through his practice. And there's an analogy used in this regard. And we should enter into an understanding of that a little bit. A mango is a mango is a mango. An unripe mango is a mango. A ripening mango is also a mango. A ripe mango is a mango. And a, and a succulent, fully ripe, skin falling off mango is also a mango. Often this particular fruit is used in an allegorious way to explain the process of bhakti and the bhaktas. Some bhaktis Bhaktas, practitioners of, of devotional service, are, are raw. They're not yet ripe. It's just, it's, it's, it's a mango and it's, it's, it's still growing on the vine. It, it's not yet, you wouldn't want to eat it. It really has no, it, you're not going to get a good taste from it. In fact, if you ate it and thought that that was a mango, you would say, I don't want any more mangoes. That's the point I was trying to make when I opened up this evening. That the Kanista Adhikari, although he is a bhakta and needs to be given all respect, still, what he may give, although he has the best of intentions, because he's still unripe, there's the taste is not going to be conveyed. And the recipient of his fruit may actually not appreciate the benefit that they're getting. That isn't to say they're not getting some benefit because of the generous, the generous nature of bhakti is, is beyond comprehension. Just as the Lord's holy name and generosity of the holy name is in of itself beyond comprehension. It doesn't fall under the realm of material nature. But externally, it can look a certain way. And it can be perceived a certain way by someone who has no experience. What I'm saying is, an advanced devotee can walk into a room and see a new Kanista unripened devotee giving a lecture and it's all wrong. But he can see 
the good intent in his heart and know that in due course he will be he will gradually ripen and what he's presenting will be of significance but now well actually people were coming to his lectures and running out the door let's say somebody has a conception of uh that is very very uh ultra conservative and very social in his nature of looking at bhakti he may be a bhakti at heart he may be purified but when people come all he can talk about is well if you live this way you might you're just a stool eater and you're eating you know eating your own vomit and people are going to come in and there's going to be no attraction there there's not going to be any taste uh conveyed to those students you see what i'm saying he may have the best of intents, but the fact of the matter is, he's probably going to shut down the temple because no one's going to be showing up unless they have really, really good cooks. The generous nature of bhakti is there. A mature devotee can walk into the class and say, well, he's getting it all wrong, but in due course of time, I know this boy's chanting his rounds. He's out there, you know, selling books or, or, or making working in a for a living and giving his money. His heart is in the right place. He's just, there's, he's immature. He's not ripe yet. He's still raw on the vine and rough on the edges. Someone with discrimination can see the qualifications. Someone that's just coming to Bhakti would be like, I'm never going back there. You know what he said about women? My gosh. I'm a woman. He said this about women, and I'm a, uh, you know, uh, or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a this, and all he could talk about was women and homosexuals and sex life, and uh, you know, I, there's nothing nourishing there for me. Interesting points, very interesting points to be understood. Uh, and I don't know how we got down here, out, out here on this edge, but. Uh, uh, let me kind of uh, reel it back in and get back to uh, our lesson for this evening, lest I run out of time and be kicked off the cushion. Ripe, unripe, most ripe. And we want to at least hear from somebody where we're getting some nourishment, some spiritual nourishment, and we want to respect the unripe fruit that's doing the best that they can, knowing that even though, I think we were getting there from the generous nature of bhakti, weren't we? How generous is bhakti? Well, it's, it's as generous, if not, you know, as the holy name. How generous is the holy name? Well, the holy name is so generous that for a sinner, a, a man could be so sinful, he could have given up spiritual life at the beginning and, in his old, and, and ran off and left his good wife, married a prostitute, in an old, at the end of his life, he's still having completely involved in illicit, lustful affairs with a prostitute and has a son. Finally, death comes to rip him out of his body. He's, he's laying on his deathbed and he's calling for his son. And his son's name's Narayan. Completely, you look from the outside, you say, so sinful. And really, the intent is calling his son, but still, Bhakti is so generous that the Vishnu Dudas come and save him. No hell for him. 
Even though he left his wife, even though he got everything wrong, he got one thing right. And he didn't even know it and it wasn't his intent. That's how generous bhakti is. In a similar way, the, uh, the process of bhakti is that generous. But we have to, we as practitioners, as sadhikas, we have to develop the fine discrimination that encourages us and nourishes us by hearing from somebody who as is at a level of qualification where they can truly benefit our practice. They can, they can capture our intellect. They can capture, they, they can nourish. We can taste the sweetness of bhakti by hearing from their lips. So the, the, that unripe mango has come to the point of producing succulent juices. So there's kanista, there's madhya, there's uttama. The madhyamadakari is that devotee who gives the succulent juices from his mature devotional practice. Others may have the best of intent, but they may get the meanings wrong. Vishwanath's giving us an example here. It is known from hundreds of forms of evidence that the Lord's appearance and activities are completely by his own will. He comes and goes as he feeds free. That the Lord appears in this universe by his own independent will. Superficially, he may appear to relieve the burden of the earth. Superficially, it may look like Brahma can go to the ocean of milk and pray and God shows up. Can we really demand that God shows up when we pray? No. But it's a nice story that actually Krishna came because Brahma prayed. Okay. But we, we know factually a deeper thing. Krishna wanted to, wanted to please his devotees. As far as dealing with the demons and the burden and the earth, and the fact that uh, Bhumi went to Brahma and, you know, because, uh, you know, Kali had cut the legs of, uh, of Dharma, all these things, they sound good from a, a religious point of view. But the fact of the matter is, Krishna is all-powerful. Universes pour forth from his pores. Does he really need to come onto one of the planets in one of those universes to dispatch a few demons? But it's a nice story. It draws us in. But the Prema Bhaktis, they put it all in perspective. They let us see it through their eyes. So that's what's going to go on here. Vishwanath is going to help us understand these statements through, this, through the eyes of the pure devotee. Through the eyes of the Gaudiyas. Through the eyes, through the vision of those whose only objective in their practice is Raj Bhakti not tinged with anything. Similarly, niskama, karma, activities without desire for any fruit, can sometimes be considered as the door to bhakti. There is no harm in such considerations, but Srimad Bhagavatam 
11.12.9 says, Although one engages himself with great effort in mystic yoga, Sankhya yoga, charity, vows, chanting, sacrifice, describing Shastra, studying the Vedas, or renunciation, still one cannot achieve bhakti. Here it is clear that charity, vows, and other pious activities cannot be the cause for attaining bhakti. But in another verse, from the same Srimad Bhagavatam, 10.42.24 it says, Bhakti to the Lord is attained by various auspicious activities like charity, vows, austerity, sacrifices, chanting, study of the Vedas, control of the senses, and so forth. Okay, which way is it here? We're reading the same book. In the 11th canto, canto it's saying, you can do all this great stuff and Bhakti's not going to come. But here it's saying, if you do this stuff, Bhakti's going to come. Well, what am I to believe? Here it is clear that charity vows and other pious activities cannot be the cause for attaining bhakti. In this text, and this is where Vishwanas, this is where the discriminating power of the pure devotees comes into play. And the whole point of our discussion tonight, we have to hear from those discriminating devotees or we may misunderstand what's being presented in the scripture. In this, this text, this is Vishwanath, refers to Jnana Bhuta Sattvika Bhakti, the practice of intellectual, spiritual realization to attain liberation with the help of Bhakti in the mode of goodness. In this case, Bhakti is considered a part of intellectual, spiritual realization. This Bhakti is different from Premanga Bhuta Nirguna Bhakti, the practice of pure devotion free from the three modes of material nature to attain divine love. Some also explain, and here, here it gets into a different explanation, Vishwanath. Vishwanath is known for this. He, he, is, he is the master of giving Bhagavatam verses the meaning according to the school of of bhakti and stealing from those verses that try to mislead the leader reader into another practice like karma or gyan let's talk a moment about what he's saying here here's two verses from the bhagavatam that are giving two completely opposite meanings one is saying that all of the quote-quote auspicious things that we discussed in prior classes are not going to give bhakti. And in this verse, it's saying it will give bhakti. He's saying what the verse means that saying it will give bhakti, it'll give that little bit of bhakti that's necessary so that the jnani can attain his goal. Because what do we know about karma? and jnana and yoga, all of these practices, which are not bhakti, cannot attain success independent of a smidgen of bhakti. They need a little assistance. And that assistance that makes them successful is bhakti. Just a little bit. It's like the beautiful bread we had today. 
it needed a touch of salt. Otherwise, it was, although it looked perfect, the texture was tremendous, the intent was there to give a nice offering, everything was there, but what was missing was that pinch of salt. And therefore, was it palatable? No. It was actually tasteless. The result was not there. But everything looked right. Everything. And even the cook had the right part. He wanted to make this nice. But no salt. He forgot the salt and poof. It wasn't unedible, but it was not, not taste. So these other practices need a touch of salt. Gyan, yoga, karma, they need a touch of the salt of bhakti in order to be successful. So that's one explanation. That what's being explained here in this part of the Bhagavatam where it's saying that these things give bhakti, they give bhakti because their aspects, their angas of jnana, and by them one can become a recipient of that one ingredient of bhakti to make his whole practice successful. So it looks like they're giving bhakti. But they're not giving the bhakti that Rupa Goswami's talking about. Because in the same Shastra, it explains that all these kinds of activities, in that part of the Shastra where it's talking about pure bhakti, unalloyed bhakti, the bhakti that, that is, the, is being presented by Rupa Goswami, all these things are not required at all. And they don't give any bhakti. Why? Because bhakti is fully independent. Bhakti goes where she wants. And she wants to go where her devotees want to take her. It's a loving affair. And then Vishwanath gives, then he says, all right, well what? Let me, let me just tell you what this verse really means. Okay? That says that these things can give bhakti. If we're going to say that these things give bhakti, Yes, they can assist in giving bhakti. When? Well, then he gives some context. And this is interesting. He turns the meaning of the verse around. He says, this bhakti is different from praying bhakti. And then he goes on to explain, but if we look at it a different way, let's look at it this way. What the verse is actually saying is, some also explain that the word dana in this sloka refers to charity for Vishnu and the Vaishnavas. Vrata refers to Akadasi, John Mastami, and others. And Tapasya refers to austerities to attain the Lord. Then they are different parts of sadhana bhakti, the practices. Thus, praying bhakti is attained by devotional practice sadhana. It is said in the Srimad Bhagavatam that sadhana bhakti is the cause of sadhya bhakti. 
The causeless nature of bhakti is thus proved and all arguments are properly clarified. So first he puts forward one thing. Well, this part which says it gives you bhakti, that's referring to jnana, that little bit of bhakti that makes jnana successful. But if you want, we'll look at it a different way. That verse that says that these things give bhakti, yes, they give bhakti when they're already part of bhakti. When they're done in conjunction with sadhana bhakti. Then, yes, charity is advantageous because you give to Krishna or you give to Krishna's devotees. Vratas are, vratas are good. When they're, you know, a codice or John must be where it's for Krishna's pleasure and the pleasure of and service to the order of the spiritual master. Everybody understand this? It's kind of thick, but it's really, really important to see things in this perspective. But what's most important, what really rings true to our practice, is the fact that when it comes to these contradictions, when things don't make sense, we go to the fully ripe mango and get the nourishment of the proper explanation. The expert, pure devotee can give us the proper conceptual orientation to dispel any doubts that may come from contradictory explanations given in the Shastra or by other Vaishnavas who may not yet be ripe enough to give good instruction. I think I've made my point. Let me know if I haven't. And we'll go over it. Now, Vishwanath goes up on in the next verse to further elaborate on the nature of Gyan. Because so many people, I guess, at his time, were confused and he needed to really clarify the fact, and even today this applies to us, as the distinction between Gyan and Bhakti. Now what's the objective of the Gyani? He wants to be free of material existence. He wants to be liberated from the sufferings of material life. And he wants to attain that by knowledge of things as they are. Before he can come to this platform of having the proper intellectual understanding of spirituality that let his, lets him move forward in the line, before he can come to that platform, he has to do what we would call niskarma karma. He has to perform perfectly his material existence so that his heart is pure. There's no way of attaining the goal of jnana, yoga, without a pure heart. And the only way to attain a pure heart is to have a pure life, a pure existence, without any fault. It's a daunting task, to say the least. First, you have to be a perfect karmi, up to the point that the heart is pure. Everything you do, it has to be done without attachment. Niskarma, karma, yoga. Niskama. Kama, kama means lust. So, nis, without lust, you do 
your work in life. No desire for the results of the work. Lust, the comma, to have the result has to be, you have to be free of that. This comma, karma, yoga, leads to jnana. The jnani can practice his pursuit for complete purification once his activities are, pure, are free of any lustful desire. Then the heart is free of that. And when the heart is free, then the pursuit for jnana can proceed nicely. Vishwanath goes on. Oh, all-pervading Lord, those who have left bhakti yoga, the path of attaining all auspicious, for attaining all auspiciousness, what is the use of one's engagement in dharma without devotion? In the past, many yogis finally took shelter of bhakti. So he's quoting different sections of the Bhagavatam. From these references from the Bhagavat and from many other references, it can be understood that jnani, jnanis, karmis, and yogis completely depend on bhakti for attaining perfection in their respective paths. We've touched on this. Bhakti, however, is never even minutely dependent on them to achieve its perfection, praying. Never, ever minutely dependent on them to attain its perfection, praying. What a statement! These kind of statements coming from the, the praying bhaktas, they throw the religious world on its head. It's like they just toss it out the window. It's, it, it's phenomenal to look at the, at the, at the potency of bhakti yoga and how all these other paths are of, we just, they're all behooved. It's like there's no significance to them at all. Well, what do you mean? You have to have Varnashram or you can't become a devotee. No. You don't. Well, you have to, uh, you have to be free of all lustful desires. You have to be a perfect, perfect human being to be a devotee. No, you don't. Well, you, you, you have to be great at sacrifice. You have to be great at this. You have to, no, you don't, you don't, those are not the qualifications. Bhakti is fully independent like Krishna. No, no, Krishna can only come when Brahma paves, when come and, and have his pastime when Brahma paves the way through prayers. No, Krishna doesn't come when Brahma prays for him. Wait, it says right in the Bhagavatam, that's how he comes. No, you're misunderstanding what's being said. It looks like that's what's happening. But read deeper. Study deeper. Hear from the, from the mature fruit. The ripe mango. What is the right way to understand the Lord's advent? The pure bhaktis bring out the meaning that gives significance to what's in the Shastra. Just as Vishwanath is doing here. Thus Shastras say, all the fruits attained by performing sacrifices, austerities, intellectual, spiritual realization, and detachment from the world can be easily attained by my devotee, by Bhakti Yoga alone. Indeed, the scriptures say that such fruits are useless for persons not engaged in devotion. Wow, all that trouble. All that trouble to get it right 
And if they make any mistake along the way, they've just wasted energy. Or the opposite result entirely. Opposite result entirely. And that's one of the, the interesting things where the Bhagavatam is, is pointed out as being an ancient Puranic text. Is what? The story of whom? Vritrasura. I don't have time to relate that this evening unless you really want to stay up late. But basically, a great Brahmana, a great Brahmana's son was killed by Indra, the king of heaven. And he wanted revenge. And he was very powerful. His name was Twasta, and he performed a sacrifice, and he intoned all these great mantras in order to attain that revenge he wanted for the death of his son. And in, and in, in invoking the mantras to attain his end, who would be a demon that would kill Indra for killing his son, he messed up the mantra. What was the result? Instead of getting that demon that would kill Indra, out came a demon who Indra could kill. He gave the wrong inflection. Everything else? I mean, this guy was qualified. He had all the degrees on the wall. <laughs> right? But there was just one little mistake. He was an actual qualified physician, Twasta. But the scalpels slipped just a little bit when he was performing the surgery and all the degrees in the world couldn't save the patient. So the result? Well, Indra was victorious and killed Vritrasura. So, karma, jnana, yoga, all these pursuits are very exacting for the practitioner. And if they make any little mistake, mess it and make a mistake, jnana or yoga or uh, karma, the result is you go back to, or to zero, or in, as you can see, like Twasta, he went into negative numbers. The demon he conjured up, Indra killed the demon exact opposite result. This verse goes to explaining that a little bit in detail. And I'm just going to go over basically the conclusion of the verse. Specifically, what Vishwanath brings out here in this particular verse is in, if we look at, at the practice of purification attained by the jnani, the jnani who wants to be free of material existence, who's purified his heart and is practicing jnana. He needs, the, he needs that little touch of salt, of bhakti, to become successful. Four broad categories of jnanis. First is the one that doesn't get any result from his practice because he doesn't even look to bhakti for assistance. Some practice only gyan with the idea that only gyan can deliberate, 
can deliver liberation without the help of bhakti. So he thinks without bhakti, I can just do it on my own. The result is that they indeed undergo hard troubles with fatigue as the only result. All that hard work, all that purification, all that learning, that knowledge of Gyan gives nothing except they're tired at the end of the day. And they're still in material existence. They are actually a T nindita or highly condemned jnanis. This sloka refers to such jnanis. That's what Vishwanath is saying in the sloka. He's bringing that out. Now there's another category of jnani. That's, this is a jnani that doesn't even look to have bhakti helper, help him. The next, he reads the shastras that you need bhakti to make your jnan perfect. So he says, okay, well let me do some bhakti uh, let me put the spice of salt in so that I can become a successful yani. So he reads the recipe and the recipe calls for some salt and he puts it in the bread. Of his practice, he puts that little bit of bhakti, that, those particles of bhakti necessary. But he never thinks in worshipping the Supreme Lord through bhakti that the Lord is fully independent of material nature. He holds the misconception that any supreme, conception of the supreme in a form is a material conception and the form is material. In having that misconception regarding the form of the Lord that he's worshipping through that little bit of bhakti that's recommended in the scriptures. Because of that misconception, he becomes offender to the Supreme Lord. And what's the result of such an offense? They, however, consider the form of the Lord material. Though they rise to the higher stages of their bhakti, by troublesome efforts, still they are deprived of liberation as they commit offenses to the lotus feet of the Lord. As a result, they finally fall down from their path. They're condemned speculators. So the first one is tired at the end of the day and doesn't get the result. The second one's almost there because he reads Bhakti has to be there and he takes up the practice and he adds, you know, he adds the ingredient of Bhakti, but he has a misconception. He thinks that the form of the Lord is material. In doing so, he offends the Lord, and in offending a Lord, he falls down from his practice of jnana. The third kind of jnani, he gets it right. He introduces bhakti into his practice. He recognizes that the form of the Supreme Lord is spiritual in nature, and he attains the fruit of his practice. He attains liberation by the gift and the graces of what? of that little bit of bhakti. There's a fourth. And the fourth, and there's examples of the fourth in the Bhagavatam, the fourth what? He incorporates bhakti. And in incorporating bhakti, he hears about bhakti from a bhakta. And in hearing about bhakti from the pure bhakta, 
he himself, Bhakti creeps into his heart. He eventually abandons God and becomes Krishna's devotee. And he's ever successful. So, Gyani number three was about conception of Saguna Brahman. They think that, uh, that Krishna... Uh, that was number two. That was number two or number three? When you say Saguna, you mean still in the gunas, still mm-hmm. having material body. Okay. Yeah, that's the second one. And the third one, he has the proper conception that actually the form of the Lord is near Guna, above the Gunas, above the modes of material nature. And the fourth, he gets infected with bhakti because he takes the right mango. Mm-hmm. We'll stop there for this evening. Any questions? Interesting stuff? Important stuff. Contradictions. How do we resolve them? Where do we take shelter? How do we get through this maze of, of, of words coming from all these huge volumes of books? We hear from, from mature devotees and they save us from misconceptions that make our path very troublesome. It's an easy path. You just need to hear from the bona fide spiritual master. He can truly nourish us. Thank you very much.